Well, good morning, church, and Happy New Year's Eve. It won't be long now. The ball is going to be dropping, and, and um, we're going to be ringing out the old, ringing in the new. Charlotte and I will be asleep, but the rest of you can do that. And um, <clears throat> that's going to be a happy celebration for some of you because you've had a phenomenal 2023, and you're just, uh, there's no reason to think that 2024 is going to be any different. And then it's going to be happy for others because it can't end fast enough. There's been much pain and suffering in this last year, and, and you might or might not have much hope going into 2024. For most of, it, for most of us, it's somewhere in between, some good mixed with some not so good and, and, some, and some bad regardless of what 2023 was like, we all want to start this new year, don't we, with fresh hope for things like peace, prosperity, health, happiness. So this time of year is about hope for the year ahead, and it's also about making plans for things that we consider to be important. We set goals, priorities, we, we have New Year's resolutions, whatever it, whatever it might be, it's a time of year when many of, many of us, if not all of us, hope and plan for important things for the year to come. So it's timely, isn't it, that we do what we did this morning and we recite the Apostles' Creed, as that's all about hope and the, the most important things because it summarizes what we believe about God and our life in Him. And what we believe about God should inform, shouldn't it, all of our plans for this coming year and, and really every year. Last week during Christmas, we celebrated our creedal belief of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This morning, we're going to consider another creedal claim, as, as uh, Kevin mentioned, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to focus on it with a question. Why do we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Well, our text this morning answers that question. And so it's a scripture passage of great hope and assurance. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would consider the message in this passage the message of first importance because it's the message of the gospel. Believers in Christ can find hope and assurance in these verses that we're going to look at this morning because, because, because we're going to see that God the Father planned the death of his son for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to see that God loved us and Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And because we will be saved from God's wrath by the life of Christ. We'll see this morning in this passage the death and resurrection of Christ guarantee forgiveness for those justified by faith. So I'll read now, I'll, I'll read now uh, starting in verse 6, chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So before we look at verse 6, let's, let's just uh, provide some context from prior, prior chapters. First, we know Paul's writing to believers because his greeting in chapter 1 is to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So we know what he's speaking to, he's writing to, he's addressing Christians. He states the theme of the letter in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the gospel is the saving power to God in which the righteousness of God is revealed and that the righteous shall live by faith. He then, all the way through verse 20 in chapter 3, with much detail, describes God's righteous wrath against sinners. Wrapping up that chapter, declaring that we have all sinned, all sinned, not just some, all sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, focuses on Abraham and his example of this, his example of justification by faith alone, and how Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, and how the same is true for, for us, for all believers. So now here we are in chapter 5, and really all the way through chapter 8, the central theme is hope and assurance of salvation for those who like Abraham, have been justified by faith. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 5 with an affirmation of the legal standing of the Christian before God, that we're justified. And let's take a, let's take a moment here and make sure we understand what that means, what justification actually means. In justification, God forgives the sins of his people and imputes Christ's righteousness imputes Christ's infinite righteousness to his people on the basis of the sinless life, atoning death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. So then Paul continues on stating the results or benefits of justification. Those justified have peace with God, a right standing before God, hope of the glory of God. And then in Paul 5, or, or, or verse 5, Paul reminds us of this glorious news, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's a big deal right there. God's love, infinite love, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That's Phenomenal news right there. And then, okay, so then that brings us then to, to verse 6 in, in chapter 5. And for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So here we're going to see God's plan for the death of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Right away here in verse 6, we can see why we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Christ died for the ungodly. Last week, last week we celebrated Christmas and the mystery of the incarnation. Here we see, right here, Christ died for the ungodly. Here we see the reason for Christmas, that Jesus would die for the ungodly and the forgiveness of sins. That's why he came here and took on flesh, to shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. That's good news that he came, right? We celebrated that last week. Okay, so who Christ died for is emphasized in verse 6. There's, also, there's another emphasis, and it's timing. Timing. The timing of Christ's death. Timing first in respect to us and our human condition. While we were still weak, Christ died. And in timing and respect to God's plan. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so right away here, there's a question to be answered. Really, what did Paul mean by we were still weak? How, how and why were we still weak? Well, King David does a pretty good job of explaining why in, in Psalm 51, verse 5, when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, or sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were still weak because of the consequences of original sin. We're born into this world in Adam, spiritually dead and without moral strength and ability to incline ourselves at all toward God. Our inclinations are completely in the other direction when we're born into this, into this world. And in Paul, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and were by nature of a child, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're spiritually dead on arrival when we're born into this this world. So first, in regard to timing, <clears throat> Christ died for us when we were still weak, and our natural disposition was anti-God. And then, in regard to timing, there was timing in respect to God and his plan. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, so we're reminded here that God has a plan, a plan with timing, a plan that includes the right timing for the death of his son. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Peter at Pentecost said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. God had a plan. He has a plan. He had a plan. He has a plan for redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The death of Christ was not an accident. Yes, right, amen. Paul says in Ephesians that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, again, here we go, plan, timing, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, so God has a plan. You know what else we know about God and his plans and purposes? Well, we can learn from 46, Isaiah 46, 9. 
My counsel, God said this through Isaiah, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So we believe in the forgiveness of sins because God planned for Christ to die at the right time for the ungodly. That's, we believe in sins for that reason. Those are good reasons. So God had a plan for the death of, death of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, but do we know anything about God's purposes or motives, if you will, for, for this plan? Why did God send his son to die for our sins? Well, we know from Romans 3 that God was motiv motivated to manifest his righteousness and his justice. And we know from Ephesians 1 that the praise of his grace and glory is his ultimate purpose. But, we, but here in verses 7 and 8 in, in this passage, we see yet another motive. God's love for us. God's love in the death of Christ. In verse 5, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into our hearts. Now, now here, we, in verse 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, we see a more objective demonstration of God's love for us. God proved his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on, he, he illustrates the vast differences between how we love and how he loves. We might scarcely die for a righteous or good person, but God's love transcends. It's unique. It's altogether different from how we might love someone. And to more grasp the transcendent nature of God's love for us, we need to understand how costly this gift was to God, the giver of the gift. Because the essence of loving is giving. And, and, we, and this is evidenced by John 3.16. We all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God the Father demonstrated his love for us in giving his only son to die for us. And we can better understand the measure, and, and we can better understand and measure the degree of God's love for us when we consider the costliness of, of the gift to the giver and the worthiness or unworthiness of the recipient of the gift. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. <clears throat> Around 20 years ago, I arrived home from work and asked Charlotte how the day went. And this was a time where there would be 15 bicycles in the yard and kids everywhere. And uh, her response this day was, well, Joe, our son Joe, our oldest, well, Joe has something he needs to tell you. And I think he was around six or seven years old at the time. He came into my office at home and he was crying and he was scared and distraught. And, and he proceeded to tell me about an incident in the neighborhood involving another boy and, and the other boy's new toy. 
It all went sideways. And the other little boy, he was not happy. And neither were the other little boy's parents, apparently. That was part of the story. And after listening, I told Joe something he already knew, that he was going to have to go and ask forgiveness. And uh, now this, of course, is a very scary prospect for Joe, especially since we didn't, we really didn't have a relationship with this, this one family in the neighborhood. They somewhat kept to themselves. So it's going to be a long walk across that cul-de-sac and uh, knocking on that door may have been the hardest thing that Joe had to do to that point in his very young life. Well, before we start to walk over, I felt this strong impression, almost like a voice, say to me, make sure he knows you're with him. And so I did that. I made sure he knew I was with him. I was with him the entire time, helped him as much as I could. But my heart was breaking for the little guy because he had to do this very hard, scary thing. He was sad, crying. I really didn't have, want him to have to go through it. <clears throat> but we, we both knew he needed to. And he did it. He, he got it done. And I was very proud of how he, how he got it done. But I don't know if it was harder for him or me. I know it was harder for me, probably, uh, to go through it. Now, on the walk back home, Joe's countenance quickly changing. He's the happiest guy in the neighborhood at this point. I'm free again. Uh, but by the time I get back to the house, I am an emotional wreck. And, and here's why. First, I was reminded of the impression I had, make sure he knows you're with him. And also, I had this thought that that's the heart of God toward his children. He, he never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always in the midst of whatever pain and suffering we're going through. And he never turns his face away. He's always right there with us. But then I remembered this, and this is where, <laughs> right there in a cul-de-sac, I was just breaking down crying. God turned his face away from his beloved son when he was suffering like no one ever had or ever would. <clears throat> Isaiah 53 tells us that while humans he created were torturing and killing Jesus, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on his incarnate son. He laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all and Jesus was crushed and put to grief. God's only son his beloved son, in whom he was well pleased, was beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross <clears throat> to save his enemies. And while his sinless son hung there, not only did the father turn his face away, but he poured out his unmitigated, holy, righteous, awful wrath onto his son, so that I could be saved from God and his wrath. That's true for you too. So how could I ever doubt his love for me when he gave so great and costly a gift as his beloved son? And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, how could I ever doubt that my sins are indeed forgiven? The cost, the cost of this gift 
is immeasurable and infinite in value. So the love of God in giving his son is also immeasurable. There has never been and never will be a more costly gift to a giver. It's infinitely costly. But now, okay, what about us as the recipients? How worthy or unworthy are we as recipients of this infinitely good gift? Well, it's not a real pretty picture. Um, Paul labeled us as still weak and ungodly in verse 6. And uh, he goes on to label us as still sinners here in verse 8 and enemies of God in verse 10. So clearly, we're not worthy recipients of anything good from God, but only God's judgment and his wrath. Paul here doesn't elaborate on these labels that I just uh, read uh, and what they mean, but he, he did do that at great length in chapters 1 to 3. Uh, and quotes, and here, in chapter 3, he quotes Old Testament scriptures, and I'm going to read them here, that paint the picture of how worthy or unworthy we are as recipients. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this picture really can't get much uglier as the recipients of this infinitely good gift. The following is a quote from 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards. <clears throat> Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to their loveliness, honor, and authority. Therefore, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If there is any evil in sin against God, it is infinite evil. Our sin against God is infinite evil and deserves infinite punishment. But God, but God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In November, Robin taught us from Luke about the sinful woman whose sins were forgiven by Jesus. She showed up uninvited at Ferris, uh, Simon the Pharisee's home, a uh, dinner party he was having with Jesus. And she proceeded to worship Jesus with a display of humility and love as she anointed him with oil, expensive oil, and she washed his feet with her hair, her tears and hair. And Jesus told Simon, when, who, who questioned Jesus, that those who, who are forgiven much love much. Clearly indicating that this woman demonstrated such radical and costly love for Jesus because she knew 
how unworthy she was of his love and forgiveness. I want to be like that woman. I want to be like that woman loving Christ much. But you know what that takes? It takes remembering that apart from Christ, I am worthy of only God's wrath and judgment. And you know what? I'm, con I'm continually tempted to think I'm not that bad. Or I wasn't that bad, especially since I've been a Christian now for 37 years. The Holy Spirit has done awesome supernatural work in making me more like Jesus for his glory. Before I was converted, there was absolutely nothing good about my character. I had negative character. Zero character, I had negative character. But once born again, the Holy Spirit, he goes to work. He goes to work and uh, through a lot of pain and suffering and trials and discipline, uh, he makes you more like Jesus, doesn't he? And as he does that, uh, there can be character where there was once zero character or negative character. And so this is where the scriptures are critical and very helpful because <laughs> I have to be very intentional in reminding myself that when I'm impatient or proud or self-righteous, selfish, whatever it might look like these days now that I'm more sanctified, um, it's still, it's infinite evil and against God worthy of infinite punishment. But God loved me and Christ died for me. And so I'm forgiven. What about you? Do you love Jesus much like the woman at Simon's dinner party? Radical, costly love. If not, perhaps you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven, like I can tend to do. And here's another question that can sting that uh, is good to ask ourselves, at least occasionally. How am I doing at forgiving others? Uh, because the answer can indicate whether or not I'm loving Jesus much while realizing at the same time I've been forgiven much. The late author and Bible teacher, Jerry Bridges, he used to come here regularly and teach, said this, when we see how extravagantly and undeservedly loved we are in the gospel, we see how much God can be trusted and depended on. We see in verses 7 and 8 the extravagant love of God toward us, undeserving sinners, proving also that God can be trusted and depended on. So we can say with much conviction, we believe in the forgiveness of sins because God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there's something else very important to notice here in verse 8. It's very important. God showed his love for us. It's important to understand who the us is. Is us everyone? Has God showed his love for everyone with the death of a son for sinners? To answer that question, we can remember who Paul is writing to. The us that God has loved with the death of a son are those who by grace have been faith, those who by grace have faith in Christ alone. 
for their justification, reconciliation, and salvation. That's the us, those who have faith. So now, verses 9 and 10, much more shall we be saved by the life of Christ. To this point in chapter 5, Paul's focused on the good news of what God's already accomplished through the death of his son. We've been justified, we've been reconciled, we're standing in grace and have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope of God. But here in verses 9 and 10, there's much more good news to come. First, let's notice how Paul changes his emphasis from justification to salvation. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? Okay, Paul, but wait, wait a minute. I thought I was saved from God's wrath the moment I believed and was born again. The answer to that question is yes, you have been saved. But your final salvation has yet to be consummated. You don't receive your final salvation until you're in heaven. If you're justified and you are, if you are justified, you're certain to receive that. You're absolutely going to receive it. You're certain to receive salvation, but it's not happened yet, finally. So now we look at verse 10 and we see the word reconciled. While we were enemies, we were reconciled, and much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While the word, while the word justification is a legal term, reconciliation is a relational term. When we were justified, we were put in right legal standing before God by the blood of Jesus. We were also reconciled or restored relation, relationally. We're no longer enemies. But now we're friends of Jesus. Jesus is our friend. We're, in, we're his friend. We're no longer enemies. We've been reconciled. So in these verses, Paul makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. The greater or the more difficult thing for God to do was the death of his son. Paul's saying, now that God has already done the harder thing and we are no longer his enemies, how much more will we be saved from the future wrath to come of God by the life of Jesus, now that we're his friends. We were his enemies, and he died for us. Now we're his friends. And <clears throat> these verses really speak to what you've heard here preached before and taught on the already and the not yet. How what God has already done through the death and resurrection of Jesus makes certain what is yet to happen or the not yet. We will be saved from the wrath of God and share in the resurrection of Jesus on the last day. Now, we know this from Scripture that there will be a future day of God's Wrath, when he pours out his full measure of his righteous wrath on this unbelieving world and, and sinners not in Christ. And according to John in Revelation, it's, it looks like this. First, um, those not named in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And John further describes it, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Forever and ever. You know how long that is? That's no end. Trillion years. You're just getting started. Forever and ever. It's never going to stop. But we see good news in verses 9 and 10 for those justified in Jesus. Those who are justified on that day will be saved from God's wrath. Sin and Satan will no longer torment us. No more indwelling sin. No more Satan prowling around wanting to destroy us. No more pain and suffering. And we will be saved from that lake of fire and the eternal torment because on that day we will be saved by our friend Jesus and his life. That's glorious news. Glorious news. These are glorious truths. They're easy to forget. Boots on the ground, real life is this, a continual struggle to remember and believe. Sin and Satan are, are defeated. They're toothless foes, but they're not dead yet. A day's coming, but they're not dead yet. And they're relentless in their attempts to deceive us so that, so that we, we have doubts and we get discouraged or dismayed and lack hope and we can forget and again be in need of assurance. Well, Paul's saying this, when that happens, because it does, it just does, it's real life. Remember, God has already done the hardest thing in giving his son to die for you when you were his enemy. Christ died so that you could be forgiven. And much more, now that you're his friends, you will be saved by his life. Remember that. So again, we can say with conviction, we believe in the forgiveness of sins because we will be saved from God's wrath by the life of Christ. A lot of reasons we can, we can believe in forgiveness. A lot of reasons. So in conclusion, in conclusion, as a believer in Jesus, if you're experiencing doubts or, or lacking in hope or assurance that your sins are forgiven, remember, we believe in the forgiveness of sins as the death and resurrection of Jesus guarantees our forgiveness. God had a plan to forgive your sins. God loved you and gave his only son. Christ died so that you could be forgiven and righteous before God. And now Christ lives and you will be saved from the wrath of God. Now, if you're listening, if you're here listening or somewhere else listening today and you've not placed your hope in Jesus, then you're depending on your own righteousness for salvation. And God, through the scriptures, has told us very clearly, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. So if you're trusting in your own righteousness rather than Jesus to save you, the Bible is clear that your sins are not forgiven and you will not be saved. But, the scriptures also say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus would say to you today, repent from your sins and believe. 
So we would pray that you would do that if there's anyone listening. Now, we come to the last verse in this section of Scripture, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through who we have now received reconciliation. Paul's encouraging us here not just to rejoice in all that good work God's done for us, but in God himself, the person of God, his power, his love, his mercy, his wisdom, his providence, his sovereignty. Now as those justified by faith in Jesus, no longer enemies of God, but forgiven and reconciled, we move from hating God, we move from that and being children of wrath to rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.